Hey up and welcome to the Strategy Sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis and welcome to episode nine of season two. Today I am joined by the amazing Caroline Webb. Caroline is the Chief Marketing Officer at the Royal Mint. If you're in the UK, you've probably heard of the Royal Mint. You might not know exactly who they are or what they do. They make coins, but they do a lot of other things. Um, if you're outside the UK, you'll be thinking, the royal what now? Um, is Caroline royalty? Is she connected to the Queen? Um, she may well be. I don't know. I didn't ask. But she, the, the Royal Mint have been around for 1,100 years. They make their coins in the UK and, and a number of other countries. And they also do a lot of other things, um, a lot of innovative things, which you maybe wouldn't expect an 1,100-year-old business to do. I came across Caroline when I was looking at some of the shortlists for um, uh, some national awards and was really impressed that their name, uh, the Royal Mint, stood out alongside some really forward-thinking brands and some really big brands, as you would expect. And I thought, this is really interesting. I've got to get in touch with Caroline and see if she'll come on the show and we can talk about it. And guess what? She did. And I'm really grateful that people give up their time to come on this show and share their insight with you and with me. So um, without further ado, let's get on to listen to Caroline talking about marketing, about building teams, about working with a heritage organization and uh, her amazing career that's been uh, taking her through lots of different directions. So here we go. Let's get straight into the interview. Caroline, thanks for joining me on the Strategy Sessions. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm glad it's Friday, but yeah, always good on a Friday. Or a little bit better than the rest of the week, but it's been a good week. <laughs> so, Definitely. Uh, I have the nice same feeling. Nice to be joining you today. Once we get over the hill on a Friday afternoon, it, it's uh, everything feels better then, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, so tell us, you are the Chief Marketing Officer at the Royal Mint. First of all, I suppose there's people outside of the UK who might be thinking, the Royal what? So do you want to explain who the Royal Mint is as an organisation and, and then tell us what your day-to-day -day role is there? Yeah, so the Royal Mint is one of the oldest brands in the world. It dates back to the ninth century. So for those of you who enjoy it, it's about 1,100 years of history that I'm now currently the brand guardian for and the marketing officer for. So quite a big responsibility. But what the Royal Mint is, is we produce British coins. So... We work with HMT, so the Treasury and the government, to actually produce the British coins that are found in everyone's pockets. So in the UK, 90% of people are kind of very aware of who we are. What they're not so aware of is what we are today. Um, and what we are today is a hugely commercial business that's got, it still provides currency to about 20 countries around the world, but also we're we've got a consumer business that's very much about creating commemorative collectibles. So coins that celebrate important events in British history and British culture. Um, we have a precious metals investment arm where people are able to access gold and we try and make it as easy as possible for them to do that so they can invest in their futures. And um, also we have a collector services division and that's very much about helping people curate and own beautiful coin collections because there's some real keen coin collectors out there that we have as our core customers and it's really important that they continue to develop their collections with us. Brilliant. We'll, we'll come back to your core customers in a moment. First of all, I want to talk about the brand because there must have been a moment when you got the job where you went, yes, I've just got the job of CMO at the Royal Mint. Oh my word. 1100 years of history it's an interesting place isn't it taking over a heritage brand where it's an amazing place to be in but also are you aware of the weight of history behind you yeah it plays quite a heavy role because we have processes and systems that have been dating back hundreds of years mm -hmm. to get us to do product design and one of part of my role is about product development and what goes on those coins so um, it's really important that we're really respectful of the past, respectful of where we are in today's culture, but making it contemporary and relevant for today's market. So it's there all of the time. Um, we're fortunate enough to have a, an experience there where you can actually go and see the history behind the Royal Mint. And that's next to the office, so we can pop in whenever we want. It's also open to the public. And then we, behind the scenes, we've actually got the depths of the archives of the Royal Mint, um, dating back all the way back to the earliest coins that have been found. So they've got evidence there. And that was the mesmerizing bit of when I joined, I think in my first couple of weeks, I paid a couple of visits over there and really saw that history living. But the archives that go with that, I think most brands would be very enviable of having. So it's a real honor um, 
but it's also made a lot everybody's got something to say about it so all my uk colleagues and friends and family go at the royal mint wow um and certainly uh, my some of my family is the most proud they've ever been when i told them what my new job was so it's a real privilege and i'm really honored to be there I, I am going to avoid trying to make this the most boring podcast in history. Well, not for me. It'd be the most amazing podcast in history, talking about the history of some of the coins that you found and things like that. But we'll save that for maybe a history episode rather than a marketing one. I know from early days in my career, I worked at Durham County Cricket Club. And while it's not the Royal Mint, everyone who came to watch Durham, everyone who was born in County Durham felt rightly so as well that they owned part of the club they were it was part of them and you were always aware of every decision you made while it may bring in new fans and new people who loved that decision there was an equal weight of people on the other side who were thinking why have you changed this thing what have you done why have you made this all different so it's an interesting job isn't it trying to modernize and keep things moving from a marketing perspective when you've got such a passionate bunch of fans who are really invested in your products I think where I'm really lucky, I've joined the Royal Mint at a time where it's going through a transformation. So a lot of the time that I'm spending doing my job is focused on what that looks like. So where do we go in the next five years? What kind of businesses could we launch that are still true to the Royal Mint's heritage and the story, but aren't about taking the customer on a journey that they're not comfortable going on. We're listening to our consumers. We're talking to them, understanding what's important to them in coin collecting. But we're also looking at things within the precious metals industry where we can really extend the brand and use the trust and the heritage of the brand to create new opportunities with new customers and bring that. And that's certainly what we saw in the last few years. We've seen a real growth of a new audience where younger audiences have come to us um, and they've bought into our digital gold products and actually sort of have bought into them because of the trust and the heritage of the brand Mm -hmm. look let's explore that a little bit more because this um you know you you think maybe the core customer is a coin collector which is i'm guessing here but probably a slightly older demographic or someone who's been doing it for a long time and, and has a lot of um emotional investment in what they're doing but you're seeing growth in younger markets as well and there must be a lot that you don't come to that by accident do you it feels like there's research behind this like there's a whole process that got to here's where the marketing opportunity is is that the process you've the journey you've been on um absolutely because we're really passionate about precious metals and gold and it's one of the materials that we've seen um work really well on some of our core products so we've done coins in gold for a few years and we've seen a growing market there so off the back of that that's where the kind of the investment arm has really sort of grown and brought people to it. And then it's about how do you make that more relevant and making a digital gold product where people can actually access it for only about 25 pounds a month, they can save for their future. So it's a really accessible product, whereas actually people think gold is quite out of reach. It's actually very achievable. Brilliant stuff. And and I just love the fact that it all still spins out of solid brand management principles. You might have it, whether you've got 1100 years or 11 years of, of brand heritage and history, you're building all the new products off of that um, and, and spinning it off that service, which is, I, I, I love this sort of, in, this discussion and I love this sort of information. So thank you for bringing it to us. <laughs> no, no problem at all. I've really enjoyed it. And my first six months have been really kind of learning about that history and the brands and you know, I'm not a history graduate, I'm a maths graduate. So it's a really different kind of skill set, but it's a really fascinating place to be. Yeah. So the maths graduate thing is interesting. And again, we'll, we'll come back to that when we talk about your career in a little bit. But I want to talk about the data-driven marketing award uh, that, that you won from the Marketing Week Awards. And th- tell us about that. Because again, you, you think heritage brand, you were up against Sky, Superdrug, Talk Talk, and other people like that in the... in in the shortlist. So what what was the project that that was involved and how did all that come together? So I can't really take all the credit for it because it was done before I joined the Royal Mint. Take it, take all the credit. (laughs) No, I'm I'm really not about that. I'm really about investing in teams and spending time really praising the teams that are around me. And at the Royal Mint, I've inherited some great people who are really passionate about our products, the way we do it, but also our customers and how we can always do it better. So that data-driven was off the back of how do we use our data better on a day-to-day basis through our email campaigns and our sort of automation process. So all credit to them for really turning that around and kind of presenting it in a way that made a real difference. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's made a real commercial difference, which is why it's able to kind of stand up there against other people and sort of stack up against some of those bigger brands, not older brands, but bigger brands in terms yeah. of more marketing savvy, I think, than some people would think the Royal Mint was. So you, you mentioned, Caroline, you have a, a maths background and there's a debate ranges in marketing about do you need marketing qualifications to get into marketing and things like that. So you started with a maths degree. How, where was your route into marketing from there? So I did start with a maths degree because I remember someone saying to me when I was very young, just do what you enjoy. So to, for a lot of people, maths is the least, <laughs> the thing they like the least. And I really loved it. So when I got to choose my university degree, I decided to do maths, but I didn't just do maths, just for, I did maths and management. So math, the management element had marketing in it and strategic marketing and strategic management. And I just went, this is ticking quite a few boxes. Um, I wasn't interested in investment management. I wasn't invested and I was in London at university and the general steer was go into the city and do, do different things. And I went, no, I want to do marketing. So I really felt it when I was studying it and I really thought, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go for it. And then I put myself out there and then I'm still here a few years later in a great role. So. Fantastic. And the, I think the skills you learn, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, marketing qualifications and people you can learn lots of things on the job but sometimes that that grounding's great but I also like people coming in from different backgrounds who bring a different view to the world so marketing is often characterized as a creative profession but actually there's a lot of the job which is not creative isn't it it's, it's very numeric very you know spreadsheet driven so th- does that sort of grounding in in maths really help as you you, you were coming through your career? Absolutely. I remember one of my first employers said the only reason you got an interview was because you had a maths degree, because you were different to everybody else coming through. So that stood out. Um, And I think as marketing's evolved, particularly over the last 15 years, where it's become more data driven, one of the things I'm really proud of is that actually I understand data, but hopefully I balance that really well with the creative skills because I enjoy those. So I've got this ability to look at numbers and not be scared by them. And I think one of my bits of advice for anyone coming through marketing would be don't be scared of the numbers. You can learn them. You can teach them. You just have to take the time. And I'm lucky because I look at numbers and I get them. Not everybody's that lucky, but, you know, you can learn that kind of skill. And it's really important to your point about getting diversity and thought. And it's all about diversity of thought and having different people from different backgrounds is great. I think it was Dave Trott, the legendary ad man, who said data is a fact, but it's not the truth. And I think he was sort of leaning into that the interpretation of the data is an important skill or probably the most important skill from there. And that, that's that's a grounding of the maths and the management element I put together, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can I quite often use the line data. You can spin to any story you want and it depends who's telling the story. So you've got to be careful that you don't just listen to the data because there's usually a lot more to it. And again, you've got to really trust who's presenting that data to you because I've I've seen it from so many different angles and people go, oh, it's the right answer. And you're like, but you haven't looked at the other lens that's coming for that. And I've, you know, I've had digital experts go, well, you can't trust that data. And I've had um, offline experts going, well, you can't trust that data. And it's like, you're not trying to judge the data together. You're trying to look at it as a different view and a different perspective. And I think a lot of marketing, I once described it, I do a lot of joining the dot, the dot. And actually it's about connecting thoughts and bits of information that you gather through the day, through the week, through the years. And you put those together into what makes good marketing. It's all about that. And as I've kind of progressed through my career, I spend more time doing, joining the dots than I do actually marketing. Mm-hmm. I once said to a, a bunch of younger marketers, it was one of the, the university courses I was uh, guest lecturing on, about getting comfortable with realising that you'll never have all the data you really want. And, and I think it's, some, it's almost the lie digital's fed us, is that you, there's enough data and you'll get all the data you need all the time. And the fact is, you never will, will you? You just have to be comfortable you've got enough to support that you've seen the whole picture and then make a decision from there. Because otherwise you just become paralyzed by it, don't you? Waiting for more data to prove or disprove something. And I think that's a real danger as well for brands that aren't making decisions quick enough. 
because again I've worked in places previously where if you wait too long for the decision the opportunity's gone what I really love about where we are we're quite dynamic we're quite a flight flat structure we're able to make quick decisions and therefore by doing that you can respond quicker to what you're seeing and, and in terms of being able to respond quickly, that comes, you mentioned your team already, but having a great team in place is an important part of being able to respond quickly because as CMO, you're not pressing all the buttons on everything. You're reliant on people that fill, feeding information up to you so that you can make a decision as a team. Over the last sort of 10 years, what changes have you seen in maybe skills that your teams need or the type of people coming into your teams? Have you seen any change at all? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things have happened. When I started in marketing, you used to do marketing and you used to touch all sorts of disciplines. It's since in the last 10 years, I think people have become experts in quite a narrow field. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lack now of more general marketeers who are able to kind of dip into different skill sets and bring those together as a bit of a unique comb combination. Um, so I've definitely seen a narrowing of skill sets. I think. There's an overemphasis on digital skills and offline skills. They're the same skills, it's just a different channel. Um, uh, and I, the number of times I've had people tell me, well, you can't do that, you're not a digital marketer. And I'm like, but it's not about the digital, it's about the customer, it's about the person that's receiving that. It doesn't matter which channel, you've just got to make the decision for the channel that's right for the customer not what you think because you're a digital marketer it must be digital yeah and it's um i've been asked to teach I, I i did some teaching this week which is why maybe it's all top of mind at the moment but i've been asked to teach on a digital marketing strategy module and my response to the university was i don't believe digital marketing strategy exists so can you change the module or can i teach on something different and i think maybe it came across as being a little bit um a little bit arsy when I sent that reply. But the point I was making was I, I don't fundamentally believe a digital marketing strategy does exist. You can have a marketing strategy. You can have digital outputs of that. But if you have a digital marketing strategy, you've already decided what's best for the customer without considering what the customer needs, haven't you? So I, I was trying to explain that to somebody via an email. So maybe we'll get a call about that another point. But is that the sort of approach you think? Think of the customer first, not the outputs first. Absolutely. You can't define the way you're going to speak to that customer until you've decided who that customer is. Um, and that's been true in, again, in all my roles I've done and no, not more so than at the Royal Mint. We've got to be really sure about who the end customer is and make sure the the message is right and then work out where they're going to respond to that message in the best way but also create you know we're working on a product that people don't need so i'm not working on tea bags that people need their cup of tea in the morning mm -hmm. i'm working on product that people just want to own and like to own or are lucky enough to own and therefore it's got a slightly different relationship mm -hmm. than a brand that you need every day where do you land on the customer portraits or the uh, you know that sort of approach? Because some people get very very strong views on this. They love them or they hate them. Uh, where, where, where do you stand on that? Do you have sort of different personas for each of your customer groups, or do you take a different approach? So uh, the need for customer personas is absolutely there. Um, we need to be sure who they are and what they're doing and why they're buying into the Royal Mint. Um, I think. We've got some work to do in that area. So I've just recruited a new head of insight. He's arriving next month. Um, so I'm not going to delve into the insights world. Yeah. Um, but what's really great about that, he's bringing other world experience to the brand um, and helping do more work on the segmentation and the data and the customer types and making it one voice for the whole business. And I think that I'm less worried about the type of persona, the type of data, as long as it's consistent through the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, really good point. Really good point. I think it's, uh, you do tend to end up down blind alleys sometimes talking about personas with people throwing things at each other going, I hate them, you don't need them. I love them. Of course you should put this information in. So it's a really good point to focus on consistency, I suppose, more than anything else. And and all the work, every job I've had has always had a version of it. it. I think it's really important, but it could be as simple as just the value of those customers and grouping them that way, or it could be about how they interact with the brand. That's fine too. Don't think we need to overcomplicate it. That's yeah. probably 
not what I need to say, but it, it's true in what I believe. I just think sometimes, again, it goes back to we become very specialist in individual bits. You've got to think holistically of how you're going to use that segmentation mm -hmm. as well, because it comes to a point you can have segments and you can have personas. If you can't actually use them, the value is gone for the business. Yeah, no, and that, that usability is probably an underrated skill or keeping things simple and the, the value of a one pager. Um, although I was in a conversation the other day with where a one pager for Tom, he was called, was explaining to me that a one pager for him is anything up to 10 pages. It's more about being able to cut your ideas short, but then he visualizes it over a number of pages. I was like, I'm not sure that is fairly useful or not. So I'm not, but do you have that sort of rigor in your organization where new ideas are presented on one page and, and put to a group or do you, are you a little bit more flexible than that? Um, I think ideas, where do ideas come from at the moment? I think we're quite flexible in that anyone could have an idea and feed it into the team, uh, particularly in marketing. You know, the PR team do a fantastic job of going out with really creative ideas about launching coins. So um, that we've, we sent the space coins that appeared in space with David Bowie and Space Oddity and the Olympics coin ended up last year or the Team GB one ended up in Japan last summer so there's lots of ways you can kind of be creative and think about things we can do differently um, but creative ideas for product is quite an interesting one because where do they come from what's contemporary now isn't necessarily contemporary in two years which is when the product would come out so we've got to think really smartly about how we get that information and then how we ask our customers um, mm. what they would value and what they would want to put in their pockets yeah and that's where how do you not so much what the process is in that but how do you do you know when you've landed in the right place with that do you get a feeling about it sometimes because there is like you say you could go backwards and forwards and look for more information and more data and kick it around again in the idea ideation process until you launch something but if you go undercooked you could end up with a flop on your hands and too many flops becomes career limiting so how do you know when you think i'm comfortable with this let's give it a go I, I mean, I think in, in a lot of, again, it, it's about being flexible and fleet of foot. If it's low investment in terms of marketing, actually try it because everything was a trial at one point, whether it was Facebook marketing or social posts, they were all trials in their own space. Back in my early days when I was working at Debenhams, radio used to be a new thing that retail didn't really get. And then you got into all sorts of different conversations about what was new. So you've always got to be willing to try something new and try and do it in a really fleet of foot, limited risk way. Mm -hmm. So We've got to be safe and we've got to be secure. And we've got to make sure that we put our due diligence into it. That doesn't mean you've got to kind of hold yourself back from doing the best for your brand and the best for your product, because you've just got to get something that works. And it's moving all the time. That's the other thing that's happened more recently. The world and the marketing world is moving faster than it's ever moved. Mm -hmm. I, I'm fascinated about the idea of radio being new in, in, in fashion and retail. I, I just assumed radio is always part of their, at least usually driving people to sales or something like that. But radio hasn't always been part of the a, a retailer's brand plans. No, when I was, um, so when I, when I went to Debenhams, and it was a long, long time ago, so um, we won't talk about exactly how many years, but when I went, was there, I worked on their one day spectaculars so one of their biggest sales events mm -hmm. of the year a couple of them a year really successful for the business um and there it was very much about radio was the last thing because it couldn't be tracked but these were the days when we used to spend money on tv and it worked every time yeah uh we had leaflets we had local marketing going out so quite kind of guerrilla marketing we had clowns running up and down Oxford Street at one point of my career that was all kind of targeting those days to get people and the theatre and the experience of shopping really nice but mm. radio was one of those things so I remember saying well can I just trial it so we trialed it in a, half the stores in half of the locations suddenly you see percentage uplifts and everyone went oh next time we'll put that in everywhere yeah. then we'll put another day then we'll use it for other things but it's not logical. To, it wasn't in those year, in those days logical to use radio for retail. Mm -hmm. Didn't understand it. And we didn't have that retail online relationship that came through later. So when I was working the money advice service, 
radio and online worked really well and because the service was fully provided online radio was able to drive and interrupt those moments to drive people to take a little look at their money and their situation so yeah lots of um radio wasn't necessarily the be all and end all that it is now and i loved radio i used to love it all the time it's it's such a, um, a, a not a misunderstood medium but again younger marketers coming through a kind of tend to forget and disregard radio as a, as a channel but when you look at the figures and the listening hours and when people have the radio on, they tend to have it on for a long time. Um, it's just such a, an integral integral part of people's lives, isn't it? It's just a huge channel for, for reaching the right people with um, with such great frequency. I'm a, I'm a big fan. And, a, and on a real personal level, and I think even increasingly now, you know, we're exposed to so many messages through our lives, whether we're scrolling or looking at our computers at home every day or looking at work. You're constantly online. So actually, when you step away, you're probably more receptive to messages than you've ever been because it's a one on one. If I'm listening, it's the same if you do an advert in the middle of your podcast, Andy. Mm -hmm. People listen because it's that one on one relationship that they're really connecting to. Maybe I should give a little pause and advertise my um, marketing strategy course, which is available in all good uh, universities in Finland, University of Vasa. Link in the show notes. Um, so Sorry, we'll move back quick. That's the, that's the advertising out of the way. Well, you had their attention. Definitely. I hope so. <laughs> so. I'll see how many clicks we get afterwards. That's the important thing. Um, but you, you've had a, a career in sort of retail and consumer uh, roles across various slightly different sectors and some that really stand out to me but which one of the jobs or, or, or which sort of period of your career would you think is where you really learned and you really developed and, and started to see things flourish? Um, I think yeah looking back Debenhams was probably because I stayed there it was one of my longest tenures so I was there for seven and a half years and it really kind of cemented a lot of the basic skills because during that time, the reason I stayed was because I moved around quite a lot and covered different elements. And that's one of the things that's kind of, why have I taken all these different roles in my career? It's to try and build my skills out in different ways, rather than staying in one brand and building out different disciplines. I've kind of moved to different brands and learned different things. So Debenham stands out because it was that real kind of nurturing was early in my career and really saw me kind of take marketing much more seriously than I probably previously had um, and then other roles that have kind of defined me I would say actually TM Lewin was probably one of the first ones where I was really taking ownership and leadership for the brand the marketing had creative studios sitting into me as well so it was a real holistic role so that really kind of cemented me as well at that kind of into the exec kind of level and kind of working directly with senior members of the team um, and then, you know, probably where I learned the most, actually, and where I think I really thought differently and started to think differently was the money advice service, which I've already mentioned, yeah. which is a slightly weird move in the middle of a, um, a very commercial career. I went to the money advice service, but I went because I knew the person that was heading up the marketing and service delivery. She she got me in to go and help them really kind of think about their campaigns the way they reported thinking holistically and there it was all about behavioral economics and kind of customers and how to motivate people who don't want to talk about money to think about money mm -hmm. and you know unfortunately everybody has challenging times in their lives where money is can be a problem or it can be really difficult and really challenging and the money advice service was set off up on the back of the financial crisis back in 2008. And it was designed to help everyday people with their finances. But getting someone to plan a budget or do a budget is really difficult. So we had to find really clever ways to think, get them to think about it. So it was like, how do you get them to think about everyday budgeting? They don't. They think about it if they're moving house or having a baby or something terrible happens, they lose their job or, you know, and we had to then be really sympathetic to that. But we were also targeting a completely different demographic to everybody else. So we, were, we weren't doing ABC1, so we weren't doing ABs. We were doing C2DZs and trying to think and really kind of try and be empathetic to how they were living their lives and really kind of do things that were right for them and be sympathetic to that. 
It's um, I, I always like, I think, when I see people with commercial careers moving into more slightly government roles and, and even the other way as well, because I think there's a lot you can learn from how the different approaches are. And, and certainly in that world where you're trying to get to people before the problem happens, it is a real, a real challenge, isn't it, to get into someone's mindset when they don't care really about, about the thing that you're trying to sell them. Um, so that must have been a really great learning experience there. And then you came back out of that. And there is one I want to ask you about your time at the rank group. Um, I say this because my first job at school, when I was 16, I went to work in a bingo hall. And after two weeks there, they made me a bingo caller. So I, um, which is probably why I ended up with the microphone and, and all the kit here. Um, so, but I haven't been in bingo for a long time. That's again from a money advice service through to Travelodge and into the rank group. What were the learnings and the lessons you took from that job? So, um, I never made my career easy. I always went for challenging um, roles. Um, and that was probably one of the most challenging because it was in an industry that wasn't at its prime. So it's a climbing industry, but what made it exciting was the rollout into digital, the rollout into kind of what else could we do? What else we could create to drive new people to the bingo um, halls that we had and the locations. So. It was a really challenging time. It probably, what can I say about it? It was one of those, I'm not sure I want to go back to gambling ever, that, no. I, but it, learned, it teaches you a lot about how, how different industries work. And it was fun and we created new events and I worked with a great team of people. We were constantly looking for how do we bring new people and, as I left, they launched Players, which was a new bingo format in Camden, which was trying to bring younger people where it was more entertainment based and kind of out there. But pre prior to me leaving, there were other formats like Bonkers Bingo that were running all over the country. So it was a really interesting time because it was thinking about the proposition, thinking about the experience, but also driving new people and getting people to kind of buy into it. So, yeah. Not everybody's cup of tea, um, but it was really enjoyable. But I, I do love that, and you touched on it there that you've you've dipped into different sectors. So mainly all consumer stuff, but you know, uh, fashion, retail, uh, in, into gambling, leisure with travel lodge and, and furniture as well. And as you're learning along the way, do you think? And I don't want you to say that your way is the only way everyone can do it, but do you definitely think there's benefits of that stepping into different sectors to learn different things and bring skills back to other roles? I think you have to be really careful. So some of some of my moves were me choosing location or life stage or different things. Mm -hmm. Some of them probably weren't where I, when I would have moved. So I think there's a frequency of move you need to be careful of. And I've, I've certainly had feedback saying, well, you've moved too much. So you need to be careful of that and you need to be mindful of it. But I think the other lesson I learned was as long as you can tell the story as to why you went, that's just as valuable. So why did you go to Travel Lodge? Well, actually, I went to Travel Lodge because my the marketing and service delivery director from the money advice service went there as marketing and sales director. She asked me to go with her. I went with her. That tells a different story because actually I was working for the same leader for three years rather than one year that sits quite oddly on my CV. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to be careful. It doesn't work for everybody. You've got to make sure that you're learning and you're constantly learning and it's adding to you. So the point about, you know, again, you make a decision at each time. Why did I go to Oak Furniture Land? It was a marketing director role. It was heading up all of the marketing function, had a big advertising spend and it kind of, had the retail footprint why did I then go to the Royal Mint because I think it's got a great opportunity and it's commercially moving in the right direction we're in a growth we've um, got a lot of exciting plans ahead we're announcing things about sustainability and we've done a partnership which back in October we announced with a Canadian chemical development sort of startup where we're able to um, process gold from electronic waste so again, we, we've got really exciting initiatives that are playing in our field. And to be part of that is pretty incredible. But the story wouldn't stack up if you said, well, why did you go from bingo to furniture to the Royal Mint? Yeah. The opportunities arose and I kind of took them. So 
my advice is make sure you know why you're going. Don't just do it because you think it's the brand. Think about the role and the task that you're going to be doing there. Yeah, definitely. And I wish you'd have told me this about 15 years ago um, when I made, I still think it's the biggest career mistake I've made. I left one job, went to another job for no other reason other than a whacking pay rise. And I, I followed the pound signs. And after I reckon about 11 days in that job, I realized it was the stupidest thing I'd ever done. And if they'd have doubled the salary, it would have still been the wrong move. And so you just realize there and you're like, I've just got to chew this up and suck it up for a year just to make it look like I've, I can stick it out. And it was hateful, but I, you learn, I learned a big lesson that day. <laughs> so. I think a lot of it is, you know, the other thing I would say is go with your gut. You can tell quite quickly. And I, when I haven't gone with my gut, that's when I've regretted it. And those are the mistakes is when I haven't gone with how I felt. And, yeah. you know, again, it's, it's really, it's a bit cheesy to say this, but at the Royal Mint, it's all connected. I'm working with a 50-50 exec, so 50% of us are women, which is incredible. Brilliant. I'm working yeah. on a brilliant brand with a big, a brilliant team that's got the opportunity to change and the opportunity to add things to that and actually get new skills in and really change the way. So I, I feel like I really make a difference. So it's like the alchemies come together. Yeah, the timing's right, the job's right. It's just, it's there for you. Excellent. Yeah. Um, in terms, so in terms of looking forward then for the, for the next 12 months, without breaking any ground of things that you're not allowed to tell us yet because they're not out in the open, we've got um, a fairly big event for the Queen coming up next year. The Royal Mint must be ramping up something for the, uh, for the Jubilee celebrations. Is there anything you can tell us about? So we've already launched, actually. We've already launched our Platinum Jubilee coins. We launched them at the beginning of January because the Queen's actually ascension to the throne. So her technical Jubilee is on the 6th of February, um, give or take a couple of days. I might have completely got my history we'll, wrong. I did we'll, say we'll get the right date in the show notes anyway, so it'll be, it'll be an effort. I did say it wasn't my strong point, um, but today we've just announced as well that 1.3 million coins are going into circulation with the Platinum Jubilee commemorative coin. Um, is going into circulation with the post office from the 7th of February. Um, so it's really exciting and really. Um, we're already on that journey. Mm -hmm. um, we've done lots already and we've got lots more of exciting plans as we build up to that day as well. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and that, yeah. that's the bit that fascinated me when I looked at it and I saw initially, I was like, the Royal Mint have won in this war. I was like, that's amazing. You know, for, to be on, on that shortlist, that, that was fantastic. And it started playing back in my mind of all the, like, you know, the Royal events that you have to be part of, but then all the other things that you do when you start researching into it. So, how does a project like that, which is very, I suppose, heritage driven, how does that differ from the, the very new, the, the gold, um, the, the gold buying process that you described earlier? Uh, you know, is, is that the same people in the same teams doing the same thing or do you carve the teams up into different ways to be able to deliver those two events? So um, for coins, uh, we've got a similar team. So the product team is made up of a mixture of people who work across the bullion and the gold products as well as um, the kind of commemorative coins um, but there's a lot of them who work on commemorative coins so the idea is that we've come up with a theme so we're forward looking three to four years looking for events notable events that we think we should celebrate and commemorate we then have to get those themes and we do research and customer research into what kind of things might resonate with the customers um, we take that research and we actually have um, some committees that are part of our history. So the Royal Mint Advisory Committee um, actually are part of our process. So they're a group of esteemed experts in art and culture and royal and kind of all of those places that we need them to be experts in. Um, and then they get to review themes and we do processes through that. Um, to get them to refine what we might be able to put on the coins. We then work on what does the design potentially look like, that that gets represented to them. So it's a long drawn out process, but it kind of ends in a royal proclamation, which is right at the end of the process where the queen has to approve all of the designs that go onto the coins. Yeah, which I, look, again is just, I think you've got the greatest job in the world. <laughs> it's just fantastic to, you know, when you go through that process of having your ideas, not just, you know, many marketers often complain that there's people judging their work who aren't qualified to judge it, but your work is years sometimes in the making that goes through 
uh, you know, presented to experts. It's almost like a PhD that you have to present in and then <laughs> go through that again. And then it has to go to the Queen for sign off. I mean, that's a tough sign off brief. Absolutely, because they're all independent and they have, every, you know, they have every right to challenge and, you know, make us do the best work we can. But the good thing is they're there to make us do the best work we can. Yeah. That's why they're there. Definitely. I mean, I, I used to do alcohol marketing in the Republic of Ireland, which is a very different regulatory environment to, to the UK. And all social media posts had to go for approval. And it was like a two week sign off process, which for social media was just hateful. And we used to think we were hard done to, but you have the Queen signing off your work. So that, you know, that's not quite the same, is it? You, you, you've got a harder sign off process than we definitely had. No, not well. Yeah, we've got we've got some challenges, but I think that's what makes it exciting and unique as well. Um, and to your point, it makes it we're able to have these kind of conversations. Yeah, brilliant. So where do you go? Where do you go to to learn to keep yourself moving forward? Do you go? Are you more of a an industry qualification? Are you a blog reader? You're a tweeter? Do you just ignore it all now because you're far too busy? And what, what do you do? Um, I'm probably I used to be a bit more of a reader. I have got my CIM. I did my diploma way back when. Um, and I do try and learn. But I don't have as much time as I used to do because I'm quite busy. Um, but the kind of I, I know you like to hear what books we kind of recommend and stuff. I do indeed, yeah. And, you know, nudge. I talked about behavioral economics, nudge and anything around behavioral economics, I think is really important. I think increasingly as I've grown, one of the things that particularly in my role now I'm think is around people and my team and how I get the best out of my team, because actually I'm there to support them as much as they are to support me. Um, and I, you know, I want to invest more of my time in getting better at that bit because mm -hmm. it's really important to me, but it's also important to the business. Um, and I do read, um, and I, I was looking at what I last read. I read The Power of Moments. Okay which is an ex it's all about experiences and I haven't read it for a while and I picked it up last night when I was kind of going what can I talk about when I speak to Andy tomorrow and I found this book and it, I remember there's stories in it about how hotel in LA has made their experience so much better by doing certain things and it was way back at the beginning of when all of Instagram was becoming but we're doing it all the time because we're creating moments every minute of every day. So it feels a little bit less unique than it did. But I do think there's something in about how as marketeers, mm -hmm. we create memories and we create, we create those memories that go forward and are really positive or with something to look forward to. I think we have a role as marketeers to really kind of work in that space. Yeah, getting those rituals for some brands, there is that ritual of, um, I get back to alcohol marketing, Corona, the lime going in a Corona has next to no purpose at all, other than it being part of a, a ritual to get people to connect the two things together. And it, it does, it's, it becomes an experience rather than a, a just a commodity, I suppose, at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, when going back to my retail days, it was all about the experience and bingo was all about the experience. It wasn't necessarily about the winning. Mm -hmm. It was the fact you could maybe win. It's a, there's, a, there's a distinction. You didn't always walk away with cash, but you had the feeling that you might have done. That's quite magical. So how do you then bring that into other brands and other places that you do? So back to what else do I learn? I, I use Flipboard actually as an app. Excellent, okay. Um, and I, you can put any subject you want and hashtag and it brings up the news. So I just flip through that. And if there's something I want to dig into, I go a bit further. Kind of, yeah. it's, it makes my, it's quick. And that's what I need at the moment. I'm more bite-sized than I am about reading a big book. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I'm interested to go back to the, the behavioral economics with, with Nudge. And, um, I, and I don't, I'm not trying to drive you down a, a, an alley with this, but the there's a lot of talk sometimes about the ethics of behavioral economics. Now, I'm... I'm I'm quite comfortable on um, a general level that if the product you, you sell does the thing it's going to do and it sells at a price that, that's suitable for the industry, then actually all you're doing with nudges is trying to move people through a sales process that they were, they were already in anyway. I'm certainly against the aggressive stacking of nudges and people selling stuff that doesn't work, that type of thing. But some people think that actually we're, we're manipulating by using nudges and that manipulation is, is unethical. Do you have any, any views on that or any thoughts on that? I don't think it's any different to data and using data. So I think it's a different way of wrapping it up. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's the way you say things. I do think as a marketeer, you, you've got to, you've got to find the line that you're comfortable with mm-hmm. and brands have to find the line that they're comfortable with. So nudge isn't right for everyone. Understanding that customers, there's a bit of a trade off and the behavior versus what they need to do. Time, effort, we talk about it all the time. Yeah, but it's the same thing. It's all behavioral economics. And all that we're trying to do as marketeers is bring the best out of our teams and the best out of our customers. And that isn't about annoying them because guess what? Our NPS scores would go down. We'd start losing them. So we can't, we need to be careful, but it's not black and white in my view. Yeah. And and, and yeah, I think that that's a great point that there is, People in marketing, I'm guilty of this, of um, proffering an opinion of how it has to work. And that, therefore, must be how it works for everybody. And it's not really, is it? There's, a, there's shades of grey across all elements of marketing. And uh, Kenda, who was on the podcast, Kenda McDonald runs an agency. And uh, we talked about that. And she, she says nudges should be rebranded as bias manipulations. And people will be less likely to use them if you called it that, which I think is probably true. But my view was that there isn't one perfect product for, for most things. Most problems people have, there are many things which would provide a solution to that. So if someone's looking at your product, using a nudge to move them through that process to help them understand and decide if it's for them and then ultimately buy your product, just is, is a sensible way of approaching it. Um, uh, yeah, but bias manipulation would sound like a, a harsh way of approaching this if we decided to rebrand it that way. So it's not for me, not for everybody. Not for everybody, but... I think there are elements of it that you can use in in whatever role you're doing to try and think about what the customer needs, but don't use it if you don't like it. Absolutely. And if you're not comfortable, definitely. And I would say I definitely would advise reading Nudge. Um, And inside the Nudge unit, have you read that one from the... the, No, I haven't read that one. So basically it's built on the same work by, is it Cass Sunstein who wrote Nudge? Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, Yeah. it's Um, those guys. So I'm also it, reading The Power of Introverts Quiet at the moment. Okay. But it the type, it's a bit frustrating because my eyes have got a bit dodgy and the type's really small. <laughs> Which is, it, it, it's a problem. So you, you're a physical book reader then, not um, a Kindle. I've got both. Uh, I've mixed it up. Sometimes, quite often with workbooks, it tends to be the physical, bizarrely. I, I find it gives you like a break from... You f- otherwise you just feel like you screen 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 yeah. all the time so i i got shot of a kindle years ago and don't ever see myself going back to one especially not with video calls and video podcasts yeah. and all of that so thanks well as we're coming towards the end and i, I will let you go because your time is precious but my, my question that i finish with every guest is what one question were you expecting me to ask you that i haven't asked you as yet oh that um... the horror of a question to throw people at the end to put you on the spot it is a horrible question, but I kind of guess one of the things that I kind of just want to talk about is about where, you know, I thought you might say, what do I need to get a job at the Royal Mint kind of thing? Because actually I'm recruiting all the time to try and get new people to join us because I need great people to kind of come and join us at the Royal Mint on our journey. Um, and I guess if you were to ask me, what would I be looking for those people to do? I'm going to flip the whole question around to me. Um, is I've got roles across products, across marketing, across. And if if you've heard anything you interested in on this call and on this podcast, please do get in touch because we are constantly looking for good people to come and join the team. What an absolute offer to have! I mean, it's amazing if you're looking for people. And are those jobs remote? Do you need to be near the Royal Mint? What's a, does it depend on the role? Uh, it depends on the role, but we're on a hybrid. So before the pandemic, we weren't really in this space. But mm-hmm. as we come out of the pandemic, it's about 50% of the time on site. Obviously, Wales have got slightly stricter rules at the moment. So we're mm-hmm. the office is in Wales, but I'm down there 10 to 1, 2 to 3 days a week. Um, and really enjoy being there. It's, we're on the manufacturing site where the coins are made. You get access to all the history. Why wouldn't yeah. you go to Wales? And it's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, you cannot beat that. So um, we'll put a link in the show notes about uh, current roles and current vacancies. And while we're just talking about that as a, a follow-up to the last question, uh, the, I was reading something by a, uh, a, one of the dragons 
on Dragon's Den, uh, Steve Bartlett, and it's not a kick Steve Bartlett session, but he was quite, it was a, a LinkedIn post he'd put up about um, avoiding jobs where you have to send in a CV or don't apply for jobs the way that everybody else applies for jobs. Just send something to the, the person who's recruiting. Do you have a view on that sort of thing? Because, actually, you know, CVs have a place, don't they, in, in recruitment processes? Uh, yeah, you can tell quite a lot from a CV. Uh, a lot of it, is it in the content or is it in the way they look sometimes? That sounds, you know, it, it's amazing how many marketeers that I've seen in the few months, the last few months. CVs aren't that great. They're not very well formatted mm -hmm. or someone had a date referencing 2019 i'm looking forward to 2019 um <laughs> and then they say the i pay attention to detail in the next sentence <laughs> those are the things that as a recruiter i'm really keen to kind of weed out and kind of do that but you know a lot of it is the sense you get and you can usually tell by reading the first page of a cv whether there's a real value in it mm -hmm. i've done video i've interviewed for a number of jobs i've done video interviews i've done recorded four four minute bits of film with pre-recorded questions that if you run out of time you run out of time and it's like stressful i think we have a responsibility as brands and as recruiters to make the processes as realistic as possible to what you'll experience when you join the brand so I certainly think we should make it easy, not scary. You know, if someone wants to send a video in, I'm happy to watch it, but just get your points across in the first couple of minutes and don't make it 40 minutes long. If you're applying to a CMO, they probably haven't got much longer than a minute to look at your CV. So, so, so just be it. mindful where that CV is going and who's going to be looking at it, because that will help you. It feels like we've come back to where we started, which is think about your customer. And if you write in a CV or if you're making a video, the customer is the CMO who's going to employ you. Think about them and make it so it solves their problems for them. That seems to be the answer to the recruitment question, I think. Absolutely. Every time. Perfect. Well, look, on that note, Caroline, thank you very much for your time. It's been wonderful having you on the show. And hopefully you get a flood of applications coming through the link, which is in the show notes below. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for your time. Just a quick thank you to anyone who's stayed this far and this long with the show. If you are still listening and you are a fan, please go to um, Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating for it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. And please feel free to share it with your network. Stick it out on Twitter, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, wherever your network is, please do share it. That's uh, always a big help. Thank you for listening and I'll see you again in a couple of weeks.